And this is WMNF Tampa, 88.5 on the left side of your dial. Stay tuned for background briefing. Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the law catching up with Donald Trump and the Trump Organization with the announcement by New York Attorney General Letitia James that, quote, we have informed the Trump Organization that our investigation into the organization is no longer purely civil in nature. We are now actively investigating the Trump Organization in a criminal capacity along with the Manhattan DA. Joining us is Kimberly Whaley, an author, lawyer and professor of law at the University of Baltimore School of Law, who was a former assistant U.S. attorney and an associate independent counsel in the Whitewater investigation, whose forthcoming book is The Outsourced Constitution, How Government Power in Private Hands Erodes American Democracy. We will discuss her article at The Atlantic, The Country is on the Cusp of a New Era. America is inching closer to a possibility it has never seen before, the indictment and trial of a former president. Then we'll assess the extent of a possible thaw in the frosty relations between the U.S. and Russia following a meeting between the U.S. Secretary of State and the Russian Foreign Minister on the sideline of the Arctic Council meeting in Iceland where they worked on preparations for a Biden-Putin summit. William Pomerantz, the Deputy Director of the Kennan Institute for Advanced Russian Studies at the Woodrow Wilson Center in Washington, D.C., joins us to discuss the waiving of U.S. sanctions on the Russian Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline, which Germany has sought and Ukraine opposes. Then finally, we'll examine the signing today by President Biden of a law targeting hate crimes against Asian Americans and speak with one of the people responsible for bringing attention to the fact that over the last year, more than 6,600 anti-Asian hate incidents have been recorded nationwide by the non-profit Stop AAPI Hate. Dr. Russell Young, a professor of Asian American Studies at San Francisco State University, who was the founder of Stop Asian American and Pacific Islander Hate, joins us to discuss this bipartisan bill now law that 63 Republican House members voted against. And joining us now is Kimberly Whaley, who's an author, lawyer, media commentator, and professor of law at the University of Baltimore School of Law. She's also a former assistant United States attorney, associate independent counsel in the Whitewater investigation, and the author of How to Read the Constitution and Why, What You Need to Know About Voting and Why, and the forthcoming book, Outsourced Constitution, How Government Power in Private Hands Erodes American Democracy. And she has an article at The Atlantic, The Country is on the Cusp of a New Era. America is inching closer to a possibility it has never seen before, the indictment and trial of a former president. Welcome to Background Briefing, Kimberly Whaley. Thank you for having me, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, Kimberly. And on the other side of the ledger, if you will, it looks as if the Republican Senate is going to give Trump a third free pass. They've Twice uh, they've <clears throat> let him off the hook with impeachments. And now they're letting him off the hook with an investigation to what happened on January the 6th and Trump's possible role in it. Yeah, well, they're letting themselves, some of themselves off the hook as well, uh, because 
you know, the the looming question here for the American people isn't so much the accountability for the citizens who participated in the actual riots. There's over, I think, 400 either criminal investigations or charges already brought across the country against the rioters. But what happened on that day? What is the breakdown that justified that that nightmare on Capitol Hill, both in terms of what happened in the White House and also reports of certain members of Congress who are complicit in in that what you know the the lead up to that moment and of course we also saw uh, a majority or many republicans vote down certification of the electoral college votes on that very day so i think there there's a couple things there there's as you say uh once again giving donald trump a pass which is very dangerous for democracy um, but also i think they're covering their own tracks and they have their eyes squarely set on the midterms and the hope that Perhaps uh, the House and or the Senate will go to the Republicans. And as I also wrote in a piece in the Bulwark uh, this week, or maybe it was last week, they're paving the way essentially for uh, if Joe Biden or a Democrat were to win in four years uh, the presidency, that a January 6, 2025 could see if we have a Republican dominated Congress, a refusal. Uh, to gavel in that presidency. So this is very, very serious. We are one election away from the end of American democracy, and we're seeing uh, the Republican Party in lockstep with basically the demise of government by we the people. And that's not a political statement. That's a statement coming from you know someone who studies the Constitution and 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 you know applies common sense and logic to, to what we're seeing right now. This is not democracy. What the Republican Party is supporting. It's something else. It's just not democracy. Well, given that both Kevin McCarthy, the minority leader in the House, and the former majority leader, now minority leader in the Senate, Mitch McConnell, both, after January the 6th, castigated Trump in no uncertain manner, and McConnell actually went much, much further and even sort of told the Democrats that she can sue this guy. But But he's changed his tune totally. So... Then you have to ask yourself, Kimberly, why? And the answer, the only one that I ever hear is that, oh, they're terrified of the base because the, the base loves Trump. So if there is to be a trial of Trump, then they had better have their ducks in a row because how else will you dispel the adulation in this kind of cult worship that exists for Trump? Well, I think part of it is that they're worried about the base, but they're also worried about having a focus through this commission at the end of this year being on what happened on January 6th. And as I said, um, how ugly that is, it's not going to look good for the Republican Party and for candidates across the country, regardless of support for Trump. Um, You know, as far as, gosh, you know, as far as how to switch to sort of shift the narrative, it's very, very difficult when the former president continues to lie about the legitimacy of the election and uh, members of Congress continue to support the big lie. We also saw uh, Liz Cheney, Republican from Wyoming, third ranking uh, member of the Republican Party thrown out of her leadership position last week. Why? Because she was actually speaking the truth and upholding democracy. Um, You know, the Washington Post counted over 3000 lies coming out of Donald Trump's uh, White House in the last four years. This is, Ian, this is a 
sort of right out of the pages of sort of historical slippages of democracy into authoritarianism, to, you know, sort of lying to to the public, just uh, attacking the media, um, sort of discounting any critique coming from the other side, uh, putting people in places of power, including um, in the court system that are just that are going to run politics and not the rule of law. All of this is a slow drip drip towards something other than what the framers established. And we're a very young democracy. I don't know how to turn that narrative around other than the Republican Party as a whole standing up for the rule of law. And as you say, uh, they're much more entrenched in keeping power in this moment than saving the structure itself for the long term. And it's really, really tragic. It's not only tragic, it's deeply unethical. Uh, and, you know, there are very, very good Republicans out there that care about policy uh, and people should vote vote the current Republican Party that's that's adhering to the big lie out of office if they want to have government by the people for their children and grandchildren. Democrats, Republicans, independents, every American has to understand uh, the other side of democracy is dark. It's dark for all of us. And we just need to get back to the business of actually having government decided uh, by the people for the people and not by entrenched politicians based on lies. And again, I'm speaking with Kimberly Whaley, an author, lawyer, media commentator, and professor of law at the University of Baltimore School of Law. She's also a former assistant United States attorney, associate independent counsel in the Whitewater investigation, and author of How to Read the Constitution and Why, What You Need to Know About Voting and Why, and the forthcoming book, The Outsourced Constitution, How Government Power in the Private Hands Erodes American Democracy. And she has an article at The Atlantic, The Country is on the Cusp of a New Era. America is inching closer to a possibility as never seen before, the indictment and trial of a former president. And what we haven't seen before, even before this possible trial takes place, given that the New York Attorney General has joined forces with the Manhattan DA to look into the Trump organization in a criminal capacity, we have never had a situation where a former president has the kind of influence that Trump has. I mean, Trump controls the GOP, and they're all sort of genuflexing, including McConnell and McCarthy. So, again, do you think that, I mean, to some extent, Michael Cohen sort of hinted at what the roadmap was when he testified before the Congress back in 2019. But let's talk about some of the vulnerabilities that Trump has with his the excessive valuation of the Seven Springs 213-acre estate that he has in Westchester County, which was used to claim a $21.1 million tax deduction and also a $160 million loan on a property at 40 Wall Street, etc. And this is short of going into his relationship with Deutsche Bank, where the assumption has been that the re only reason why this bank gave him a lot of money and nobody else would was that those lines were guaranteed probably by Russian oligarchs working for Putin. So just on what I've just listed now, do you feel that there are strong cases developing, Kimberly? Well, I do just because of the fact that now, as you indicated this week, we've seen uh, Letitia Jones, the state AG, say that her exclusively civil investigation is now essentially joining forces with the Manhattan DA. 
um, on a criminal matter. So that suggests uh, the trajectory is ramping up, not ramping down. And as you indicated, they're basically, as far as we know publicly, of course, grand jury investigations are secret, but we know publicly is that there are three areas that are uh, that are in the sights now of the state and local prosecutors in New York. One is whether Donald Trump lied on financial applications for loans, basically um, overvaluing his properties in order to justify big loans. Number two, whether he lied in the other way on his uh, tax returns, undervaluing property so he doesn't have to pay taxes. And then number three, and both of those things, as you indicated, Michael Cohen sort of, uh, the, the part of the investigation was triggered by his congressional testimony saying, like, listen, this is what he did. And Michael Cohen has publicly said that he's met with government lawyers at least eight times and has not only confirmed that in terms of his testimony, but also provided documentary evidence to support his allegations. That's what he's saying. And then the third piece is what sent Mr. Cohen to jail which is the hush money payments to Stormy Daniels and other women leading up to the 2016 election, which um, many believe is a violation of the federal uh, election campaign laws. Of course, we also have an investigation ongoing in the state of Georgia regarding Trump's now infamous call um, to then Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger asking him to, quote, fine votes. So, you know, it's interesting you mentioned Mitch McConnell, and I do quote this in my Atlantic article. He said in his sort of stunning speech where he was almost apologizing for his vote to acquit on the second impeachment, he said, quote, we have a criminal justice system in this country. We have civil litigation and former presidents are not immune from being held accountable by either one, end quote. So essentially what we're seeing right now um, is all accountability for the apparent wrongdoing in the Trump administration and by Donald Trump is being shouldered by the states and the city, the state of New York, the state of Georgia and the city of Manhattan. The United States Congress, the federal system, uh, and presumably at this moment, we don't know anything that's happening in the Justice Department under Merrick Garland, but essentially the whole federal system, which is supposed to, in theory, the separation of powers, hold the presidency accountable, they're washing their hands of it. Um, and because of the filibuster, because of the 60 vote filibuster to destroy legislation, that is, even if it has bipartisan support, uh, we might well see Mitch McConnell kill this January 6th commission in the Senate, even though even though all of, as, as reported, all of Minority Leader McCarthy's demands for uh, a bipartisan commission were met by the Democrats. The Democrats are doing all of the compromising here, all of the negotiating to try to get to the bottom of this terrorist act on January 6th, and the Republicans are just saying no. So we need to see a lot of changes in government. This is another moment, in addition to the Voting Rights Act, where I think that the filibuster, you know, it's not operating as a function uh, of democracy anymore. It's it's operating to, to um, to make it impossible to get any serious work done on behalf of the American people. So, Kimberly, let me ask you, how are the prosecutors proceeding? Because it seems like they have leaned on Alan Weisselberg, Trump's longtime accountant, who apparently knows all the secrets and where all the bodies are buried. Now, his daughter-in-law has gone public, Jennifer Weisselberg, and are the New York Attorney General and the Manhattan DA's prosecutors are they squeezing the kids to get to the father? How, how's it working, do you think? Well, uh, there's certainly, it was reported today that they're actually, they have opened 
um, a criminal investigation. I'm not sure if this is accurate, but it's reported into Weisselberg himself. And just a little bit of background about Weisselberg. Um, he worked for Donald Trump's father um, back starting in 1973. So this is a man who has a long history with the Trump organization. And he was the only non-family member, along with Trump's two sons, Eric and Don Jr., who were, was put as a trustee to hold uh, Donald Trump's properties and trust during his presidency. Uh, he was also involved in inking the Stormy Daniels hush money payment, the $130,000 hush money payment that, as I said earlier, sent Michael Cohen, his lawyer and fixer, to, to prison. So um, Alan Weisselberg knows quite a bit. Um, as you indicated, what we've also found out was that his son, Barry, has been on the um, payroll for the Trump administration in addition to Alan. And that as part of that, according to Barry's ex-wife, uh, over $500,000 in tuition payments for Barry's children were paid by the Trump administration or organization and signed either by Weisselberg, the grandfather, or Trump himself. So, so they're circling. Certainly, they're circling. And you know, uh, this kind of financial trades, these financial transactions, uh, you know, they can be papered. They can be identified through through you know, sort of the actual paper trail or electronic trail. Um, but the question is the sort of knowing intentional aspect of it. Donald Trump is the head of the organization, his own lawyers uh, had put in writing that, you know, he's the top person out over 500 entities that make up the Trump organization. But he's gonna say, listen, these are my minions. I had nothing to do with this. So having Weisselberg be available to confirm Donald Trump's knowledge and walk through these documents is a critical element. And it's pretty typical for prosecutors to sort of try to get the lower hanging fruit um, to flip, so to speak, to become cooperating witnesses to then to get to the get get to the top, which in this moment is absolutely Donald Trump. But it's impossible, honestly, Ian, to to know in this moment uh, how close they are to an indictment. Uh, and I'm sure this is probably the most serious case uh, that has ever crossed any of their desks. They have to be not only 100% sure that an indictment is proper, but that they could actually get a conviction uh, by a jury beyond a reasonable doubt. Uh, and and you know a former president. This is really really serious business. I think a few years ago people would say it's inconceivable um, to to that it would just be unseemly to do this. But I think Donald Trump has has violated so many barriers or so many guardrails uh, of of decency as as president and as a post president uh, that there has to be some ticket for for this kind of speeding through. Uh, the guardrails of what we think is normal and appropriate behavior of a president of the United States. And just in closing, it seems that the notoriously cheap Trump, who just disposes of people and doesn't pay his bills, and we learned, and Rudy Giuliani learned that recently, he looks like he really did take care of Alan Weisselberg. And I guess in terms of squeezing him to try and get him to flip, he may be vulnerable to uh, some exposures on not paying taxes on some of this. these monies that are being uncovered? Yeah, I mean, that would be uh, one potential line of inquiry, right? If sort of money was shifted around without 
you know, proper tax accountability for it. So, so yeah, um, the way to sort of pressure Alan Weisselberg would be to say, listen, you make what's called a proffer. This is the evidence that we have against you, against maybe your son. And this, of course, is complete speculation on my part, um, but this is how it would work in theory. This is what we have. If you agree to cooperate and talk to us like Paul Manafort did, if you recall, in connection with the, um, with, with the, uh, the, what, the investigation of the 2016 um, uh, Russian interference in the election by Bob Mueller, he later retracted that. But the idea is this is what we have against you. If you cooperate with us, we will be very, very lenient with you um, in exchange for testimony that will will, will put potentially Donald Trump um, in the clutches of the criminal justice system. Uh, that That's a tremendous tremendous ask uh, and so but you're absolutely right the idea would be listen we'll we'll, we'll let you and, and or your children go free or at least a much lower sentence if, if you cooperate with us um, and give us the evidence that we need because he does know where the bodies are buried here um, when it comes to the Trump and, uh, organization well Kimberly Welly I thank you so much for joining us here today Thank you for having me, Ian. I always enjoy chatting with you. Well, thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Kimberly Whaley, who's an author, lawyer, media commentator, and professor of law at the University of Baltimore School of Law. And she's also a former assistant United States attorney, associate independent counsel in the Whitewater investigation, and the author of How to Read the Constitution and Why, What You Need to Know About Voting and Why, and the forthcoming book, The Outsourced Constitution, How Government Power in Private Hands Erodes American Democracy. And she has an article at The Atlantic, The Country is on the Cusp of a New Era. America is inching closer to a possibility it has never seen before, the indictment and trial of a former president. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking into a possible thaw in the frosty relations between the U.S. and, and Russia following a meeting between the U.S. Secretary of State and the Russian Foreign Minister and the waiving of U.S. sanctions on the Russian Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline. back. I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is William Pomerantz, who's the Deputy Director of the Cannon Institute of Advanced Russian Studies at the Woodrow Wilson Center in Washington, D.C. And he also teaches Russian law at the Center for Eurasian, Russian and East European Studies at Georgetown University. Welcome to Background Briefing, William Pomerantz. Glad to be here. Well, thanks for joining us. And it does seem like the Biden administration is trying to thaw things out a little bit with Russia. There have been a couple of developments on the sidelines of the Arctic Council uh, summit in Iceland on Wednesday. Secretary of State Blinken met with Soviet Foreign Minister Lavrov and they had a, seemed to have a fairly cordial discussion. 
and they're laying the groundwork for a summit later on between Vladimir Putin and President Biden. And then the U.S. waived sanctions on the Nord Stream 2 company and its chief executive, Matthias Warnig, who is a former East German intelligence officer. And that seems to have been something that the German government, Angela Merkel, was anxious to have happen. Obviously, it's getting some criticism from Republican circles, which we can talk about. But how does this strike you? Is there a thaw underway? I don't think there's a thaw underway. I think there's a beginning of trying to find a way to tone down the rhetoric and to have a cordial conversation, as it were. Not necessarily a reset or cordial relations, but to find some way of communicating that can at least bring us bring these two major powers back to to the table. I've followed the various announcements in Russia uh, leading up to this uh, meeting with Blinken and Lavrov, and the, the soundings in Russia are just very negative uh, in terms of accusing the United States of Russophobia, of trying to get Rus- Russia removed from the Security Council at the UN, and other really wild accusations. So if this is the beginning of a more civil dialogue between the United States and Russia, uh, that is only to be encouraged. We'll just have to see what results from it. Well, I've heard reports from Russian sources and former KGB officers that there's something of a power struggle going on inside Russia with Putin being threatened from the right by Nikolai Petrushev, the very hawkish national security advisor. Have you heard anything to those effects? I have not heard anything to those effects. Um, Obviously, over the last six months, Putin has passed major constitutional reforms that have centralized power in the presidency and actually increased his power over the policy and also his position within the Russian Federation. If there is a game against Putin, it is very much in the shadows and has not been revealed as of this time. Well, what explains, though, for example, the recent cyber attack on the colonial pipeline, which even though Biden said he attributed to Russian criminals, it's pretty hard to believe that the Russian criminals didn't have some kind of relationship. We know they do have a relationship with the intelligence services simply because how do they know how to target such a critical piece of infrastructure? So I'm just wondering whether is Putin still hands-on in terms of these somewhat aggressive actions, not just this one, but also solar winds? Putin always has an element of deniability for all these different types of actions around the world uh, against opposition candidates, uh, against uh, major political figures such as Alexei Navalny. Um, he, he always has a means to separate himself from the actions. And so I think that it's unclear to what extent Russian intelligence services are acting on their own interests or on their own initiative uh, to please President Putin or whether there is direct approval from President Putin. Uh, Putin has always has preserved some element of deniability in all these actions. Whether one believes that he's not con- uh, consulted or not even in the, um, the decision-making process, um, 
there are many doubters. And I think that in, in many ways, Putin must be aware of these situations because he is the one who has to respond to it. Sure, and, and, and the Russian sources that I've talked to that have suggested that there's a, something of a power struggle from the intelligence services, the FSB, and from Nikolai Petrushev, suggesting that these are acts on the part of these sort of rogue actors, if you will, to make it difficult for Putin to have a summit with Biden. So that's... But again, you can't take any of this stuff to the bank. And exactly. There's, there's, there's many a conspiracy theory that has circulated around Russia because its decision-making is so opaque. Right. Uh, but I, there are not an immediate signs of Putin losing power uh, in the short term. And there are no signs that he's not in control, ultimately, of the security services. And again, I'm speaking with William Pomerantz, who's the Deputy Director of the Kennan Institute for Advanced Russian Studies at the Woodrow Wilson Center in Washington, D.C., who also teaches Russian law at the Center for Eurasian, Russian, and East European Studies at Georgetown University. So let's turn to the pushback against the Nord Stream 2 waiver of sanctions uh, on the part of the Biden administration and it's getting a pretty furious reaction. Needless to say, the Ukrainians are very unhappy because this pipeline goes directly from Russia through the Baltic, underneath the Baltic Sea, into Germany. So it cuts out Ukraine, and Ukraine was always getting transit fees. Uh, and in fact, it was a, a slush fund that Gazprom set up to control uh, Ukraine through the corrupt politicians in, in Putin's pocket. So... Biden obviously was listening to Merkel, not to the Ukrainians. Is that putting it simply? I think that is true. The pipeline is 95% complete. Uh, Chancellor Merkel's on the way out, but she has been a staunch supporter of this pipeline, and Biden evidently did not want to contradict her. And this is a pipeline that will supply gas to Germany and, I guess, to other parts of Europe, and the argument has been that it will make... Western Europe too dependent upon Russia. That's true, and it will increase the dependence on Russia for uh, gas uh, imports. There was already a Nord Stream 1 before there was the building and construction of Nord Stream 2, so Europe and Germany were already dependent on Russia for gas supplies. This will evidently make it more dependent, but and, and again, will we'll strike Ukraine, the middlemen, out of the gas pipeline business, uh, which is also what was Putin's intention. And so I think Biden inherited this problem, and he wasn't going to disrupt this pipeline. That would cause various problems with Europe. And even though Merkel is on the way out, he evidently didn't want to do that. There will be a significant backlash from this, however, both in the Congress both in the Ukrainian diaspora in, in the United States, which votes and is highly vocal in the support of Ukraine. And obviously, uh, it was just a few weeks ago that Blinken went to Ukraine and talked about the support of the United States for Ukraine and its territorial integrity. And here we are a few weeks later, and that guarantee, although still on, on the books, it's clear that 
the United States will go with its more with its stronger European ally in this particular instance. And in terms of domestic pushback against this move by Biden over the Nord Stream two gas pipeline, Jim Risch, who's the uh, top Republican on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, described Biden's move as quote a gift to Putin that will only weaken the United States' leverage in the lead up to an impending. Biden-Putin summit. And then Michael McCall, the top House Republican on the Foreign Affairs Committee, said, if the Putin regime is allowed to finish the pipeline, it will be because the Biden administration chose to let it happen. It is a Russian malign influence project that threatens to deepen Europe's energy dependence on Moscow, render Ukraine more vulnerable to Russian aggression, and provide billions of dollars to Putin's coffers. So that's the pushback. Yes, and and um, I must say that if Biden wanted to approach the summit between himself and President Putin from a position of strength, uh, maybe he wanted just to have the threat looming about potential sanctions f- over the pipeline. Uh, it, indeed, it, it it is rather strange if he wants to negotiate with with Putin and Russia and the pipeline provided him some leverage, um, it's very puzzling as to why he would sacrifice that leverage uh, in the lead-up of of this meeting. Um, Russia will very happily say thank you very much, um, and then will continue to go down its list of demands uh, against the United States. Well, uh, I don't know. I mean... (laughs) I don't want to keep going on with that conspiracy theories, but the theory that I've been told is that Biden's trying to help Putin. But I well, I Biden has has assumed the presidency and this issue after the fact, after the fact that the pipeline has been largely laid, after the fact that you know the Europeans got all the approvals within the European Union uh, and the neighboring countries to build this pipeline, you know. The, the pipeline was built under someone else's watch, and the, the, the previous presidents did not stop it or did not put sanctions onto the pipeline, and Biden evidently made the calculation that he wants to strengthen his, his relationships with European allies, and to do so, uh, it wasn't advisable to start by alienating Chancellor Merkel, even though she's on the way out. So if it's a loss of leverage, as you, as you mentioned, and as the Republican critics say, then on the other hand, it might be a kind of a peace offering because things are pretty bad. And the Russian, you mentioned how hostile the Russian press is and full of all kinds of paranoid theories. This is, I think, overall a, a good positive development, isn't it? I mean, you know, you can't have this kind of frictions going on and on between these two nuclear armed powers and you can't afford not to have them talking to each other so that's a good development obviously so what do you see actually happening at this summit assuming that the groundwork is now being laid and it's going to happen what's going to be achieved obviously the achievements will have to be will have to be kind of negotiated before this summit and I don't think that some of the long-standing problems of Ukraine, of Syria, and other places that are contentious between the United States and Russia 
are going to be solved within the next few months. Um, it would be highly un- that, that would be a highly unlikely development. But the theory is that you know get these two leaders head to head, have them discuss certain issues and certain hot spots, and maybe there can be some resolution to them. I do not see kind of a major change in Russian foreign policy. I do not see, for example, that the United States can dislodge the good relations between Russia and China. Again, the, the economic and political links between these two, those two countries are pretty strong now, and I don't think the United States is going to be in, in a position to divide them. So, again, there, there, is, a, there is an advantage for Putin and Biden to get together, but, you know, I think any sort of, you know, major development will be a long time, in, will be a long time coming. So, uh, in effect, what's happening then is a bit of a clean-up for the total disaster that Trump was. I mean, in geopolitics, you're supposed to unite your allies and divide your enemies. And Trump did the reverse and fractured the alliances and drove Russia and China closer together. So there are some outstanding issues that could be dealt with. And in fact, a senior U.S. diplomat said this to CNN, that there's a range of intersecting interests, including the COVID-19 pandemic, climate change, dealing with the nuclear programs in Iran and North Korea, and the situation in Afghanistan. So all of those would be on the agenda, would you say, William? They, they, they would all be on the agenda, but if someone has a magic bullet, as it were, no pun intended, um, to solve these problems, these are long-standing, deep, deeply divisive issues. And I don't think that a one- to two-day meeting uh, between these two presidents are going to be able to resolve those problems. They can create a rapport and maybe begin the discussions as how to deal with these issues. But these are, as you you previously said, these are problems that Biden has inherited uh, that are left over from the Trump presidency, and they took years to develop, and they don't lend themselves to simple solutions. Well, William Pomeranz, I thank you very much for joining us here today. I appreciate it. My pleasure. And again, I've been speaking with William Pomerantz, who is a deputy director of the Cannon Institute for Advanced Russian Studies at the Woodrow Wilson Center in Washington, D.C. He also teaches Russian law at the Center for Eurasian, Russian and East European Studies at Georgetown University. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back examining the signing today by President Biden of a law targeting hate crimes against Asian Americans. My have destiny we will not hide when the sun comes up it will be on your side
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now, Dr. Russell Young, who's a professor of Asian American Studies at San Francisco State University and the founder of Stop Asian American Pacific Islander Hate, which tracks COVID-19-related discrimination in order to develop community resources and policy interventions to fight racism. He's the author of a number of books, including Family Sacrifices, The Worldviews and Ethics of Chinese Americans, Moving Movers, Student Activism and the Emergence of Asian American Studies and Sustaining Faith Traditions, Race, Ethnicity and Religion Among the Latino and Asian American Second Generation. Welcome to Background Briefing, Dr. Russell Young. Thanks, Ian. Glad to be here. Well, thanks for joining us. And I imagine this has been a a very gratifying day for you, given that President Biden signed a bill today on Thursday to address the growing number of assaults and other crimes against Asian Americans since the outbreak of the COVID-19 pandemic. Yeah, we're really gratified. We're really grateful for the leadership of President Biden, Senator Hirono, Congresswoman Meng for initiating this um, hate crimes legislation. It helps expedite investigations. It helps provide community-centered solutions to the issue. And it also really addresses the political rhetoric that really stigmatized Asian Americans at the moment. You know, that term Chinese virus was really deadly. Well, I've seen, and I'm sure you have, some terrible video footages of people being assaulted. An elderly woman in New York, brutally beaten, and people were just standing. I think it was even a a kind of rent-a-cop security guard standing by doing nothing. The young man with his child in a stroller being savagely beaten in San Francisco, and a couple of women were stabbed in San Francisco, weren't they? Yeah, it's it's really heinous. It's traumatizing. Um, I think Asian American elderly are particularly vulnerable and frightened at the moment. I know a lot of Asian Americans are staying inside um, for fear of violence and for fear of racism. And, of course, there was a horrendous shooting in uh, Atlanta, too. Yeah, so we're still grieving over that. Um plus Indianapolis as well. So hate crimes against Asian Americans has surged as well as hate incidents. So not everything is a crime. A large proportion of the hate incidents that we've received now over 6,600 are um, not necessarily crimes, but they are civil rights violations. They're traumatizing verbal harassment cases. They're racial bullying in schools. So the racism that this, this piece of legislation covers isn't fully addressed, and we need even more comprehensive legislation and policies. And indeed, in the White House today, President Biden described the the meeting that he had in Atlanta with the next of kin uh, survivors of the victims, and he's described the meeting as raw and emotional. It is. I mean, it cuts close to home for the Asian American community to see our seniors attacked Um, Again, even in the Atlanta shooting, they were seniors. So, again, that's why we think this deserves national attention. It's a national issue, not an Asian American issue. It's a national issue of violence and racism. So the vote to get this bill passed, it was signed into law today uh, by President Biden. In the Senate, some time, a month ago, I guess it was, it passed 94 to one, and the one person voting against it was Josh Hawley. But in the House on Tuesday, the vote was 364 to 62. 
and uh, I believe it was actually 63 Republican House members voted against it. Have you any idea, one, why they did that? And has there any of them come forth with a, a reason why they would vote against such a bill? You know, I, I don't really understand why people would vote against this. This is legislation calling for equality, um, to fight discrimination, to fight racism, clear American values for equality and justice. So um, I'm too perplexed why people would vote against this act, especially when such a large segment of the Asian American of the American community is being under attack. Forty-five percent of Asian Americans, according to the Pew Research Center, experienced this type of racism in the past year. So um, it's morally wrong. It's um, traumatizing, and it is again a civil rights concern for Asian Americans. And again, I'm speaking with. Dr. Russell Young, who is a professor of Asian American Studies at San Francisco State University and the founder of Stop Asian American and Pacific Islander Hate, which tracks COVID-19-related discrimination in order to develop community resources and policy interventions to fight racism. He's the author of a number of books, including Family Sacrifices, The Worldviews and Ethics of Chinese Americans, Moving Movers, Student Activism, and The Emergence of Asian American Studies, and Sustaining Faith Traditions, Wraith, Ethnicity, and Religion Among the Latino and Asian American Second Generation. So let's talk a little bit about the second generation and younger Asian Americans. According to polls, in the 2020 election, there were record numbers of Asian Americans voting, and those numbers were pushed up by youth the youth vote among Asian Americans and it was very apparently very important in states like Georgia where Biden won narrowly and where the two Democratic senators won narrowly. So first of all, is it true, Russell, that the Asian American vote has has been percentage wise rather low compared to other groups? Yes, it's true that the Asian American voting rates are low primarily because we're a largely immigrant um, population. And so it takes us longer to get naturalized and then to gain citizenship and then to understand, you know, the complex political issues. But as you said, the second generation and those who are born here or grew up here are much more um, active politically. They've been motivated by racism. 63% of Asian Americans in the last election said racism was their primary motivation to vote. And, um, Clearly, they, they came out to vote two to one for um, Biden. Well, how are the Asian American community going to navigate going forward, though? Because obviously, the U.S. relation with China is not in good shape. I mean, on today's program, we're, we're talking about efforts to calm things down a little between the, the United States and Russia with the two secretaries, Blinken and Lavrov meeting on Wednesday in Iceland and setting up a summit. But no such thawing is happening on the Chinese-U.S. front. And Trump, of course, was absolutely reckless. You mentioned earlier his disparaging racist remarks about the Wuhan flu and the China virus, etc. But there is still friction between the Biden administration and Xi Jinping's regime and it's not likely to lessen. So one of the things that was so outrageous about what Trump was doing was he lumped 
the Chinese people with criticism of the Chinese government. And the Communist Party government of the People's Republic of China is a very different kettle of fish from the Chinese people and the Chinese diaspora. So a lot of damage has been done, has it not? Yeah, it's clear, Ian. It's that the bashing of China leads to the bashing of Chinese people in the U.S., that vilifying Chinese makes Chinese Americans the enemy and those who look Chinese the enemy. This is a long-standing problem facing Asian Americans that foreign policy translates into our racial domestic position. So we understand that we should hold China's government's policies um, to be um, considered that we should help hold the Chinese government accountable. But you have to clearly distinguish the Chinese government and its policies from Chinese people, from Chinese culture, and from Chinese in the U.S. Um, unfortunately, people can't make that distinction. And by lumping and conflating these entities, um, again, that we see leads to anti-Asian violence. So how do you deal with it going forward? Or how does Biden deal with it going forward? We've recommended that the State Department really, again, make that distinction and sort of balance out critique of Chinese policies, balance that with um, expression of admiration and love for Chinese people and respect for the culture. Um, you have to temper those type of statements and then clearly distinguish the two. I think you also need to collaborate on areas that you really should be collaborating on, issues such as global warming, um, even trade are concerns that benefit both nations. You know, our own economies are so inextricably connected that if one economy goes down, the other economy will also be impacted. So I think we need to really collaborate on areas where we need to and then hold them accountable in areas where we disagree. So in terms of the work that you do at the uh, Stop Asian American and Pacific Islander Hate which you're uh, the founder of, Dr. Young. My understanding, there's been, what, 6,600 anti-Asian hate incidents recorded nationwide, and that's the work that you've done, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we received over 6,600 incidents since last year, and again, they range. They're not all hate crimes. In fact, only 5% of the incidents are hate crimes, but they range from civil rights violations to online harassment to verbal harassment. We found really clear trends that have been consistent since last year. Vulnerable populations are being attacked so that women are attacked twice as much as men and youth and elderly are also disproportionately represented. So again, I, this, this week I've been really concerned about our elderly because um, as they see the violent crimes um, against the elderly, um, they've really isolated themselves, have been again, traumatized and acting with hypervigilance and avoidance. And it's um, been really an emotionally isolating and physically isolating time for our elders. And in the bill signed today, it addresses hate crimes against Asian Americans, but what does it do in terms of deterring or preventing further attacks or punishing those that have engaged in this kind of violence? Yeah, I think, um, again, it's a first step, and it does um, support funding for community-based um, solutions. And our solutions at Stop API Hate are really aimed to be preventative, to um, 
addressed racism before it reaches the level of hate crimes. So we want to promote ethnic studies, um, again, expand civil rights protections, provide more public awareness, especially in public transit where a lot of the incidents occur. So Stop API Hate, we're really recommending preventative measures that address the issue in long-term ways. Um, Again, the racism is deeply rooted in America, so it's going to take a while to uproot it. And in terms of American politics, you mentioned a couple of the Asian-American politicians who have been helpful uh, in getting this bill through and signed today by President Biden, Maisie Hirono, uh, Grace Meng. You've also got Tammy Duckworth as well. Do you foresee more participation? And Judy Chu, I might add as well. Do you foresee more participation of Asian-Americans? And we have Ted Lieu. In fact, Ted Lieu is my congressman. Yeah, they've been very vocal, very upfront. If it weren't for these Asian-American elected officials, again, I don't think the issue would have been addressed. Um, Again, having Vice President Harris has been really instrumental in making this issue addressed. So as the Asian-American electorate becomes more mobilized, I think we'll see more Asian-American elected officials at the table and addressing this issue. Um, So... I think this is a really galvanizing moment for the Asian-American community overall. I see a lot of pan-Asian unity. I see Asian-Americans from all walks of life standing up to the racism. And I see us recognizing that we need to, because the political rhetoric has been so devastating, that we need to be engaged politically and civically and that we need to have our voices heard and to be at the table. Well, Vice President Harris actually spoke first today during the bill signing, and uh, she said this bill brings us one step closer to stopping hate, not just against Asian Americans, but for all Americans. And then she went on to say that racism exists in America, xenophobia exists in America, anti-Semitism, Islamophobia, homophobia, transphobia, it all exists. So she's taking a pretty strong stand there, and this is really something across the board that has to be dealt with because more and more you Republican legislatures are passing anti-trans bills, etc. So it looks like Vice President Harris is, she's taking the fight on, isn't she? Yeah, she is. And again, she sort of embodies the intersectional nature of, of racism and gendered violence. I know we at Stop API Hate are really learning from Black Lives Matter to address this issue. We're really building off of um, the work of Muslims and South Asians and <clears throat> Americans who experience Islamophobia. So we're gaining from their wisdom, trying to build upon that movement and to work in solidarity for racial justice for all. So again, I think this hate crimes legislation isn't just for Asian Americans, but it does support expedition. of. You've been listening to Background Briefing on WMNF Tampa. Stay tuned for NPR News. And then Janelle is here, and she will do Midpoint Friday. So don't go anywhere. <laughs> 